0: Chief Justice.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. <laughs> would I invest in a marijuana business? That's a wonderful question. Um, no, but the reason is because I think there's so much uncertainty. I Let me put it this way. Um, I would invest in a marijuana law firm.
0: This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Is it legal to get high or not? In nearly half the states, laws have been passed that make it legal to sell marijuana to people for medical use. And in four states, you can sell it, you can buy it, and you can use it as you please. But wait, the federal government still considers marijuana, along with heroin, an illegal substance. And under the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, federal law takes precedence when there's a conflict between state and federal law. So wherever you're lighting up, be careful. And if you're thinking of selling pot, it might be good to consult a lawyer before you set up shop. Peter Frick Wright is no lawyer, but he is a reporter, and he's been taking a rather hazy look at the current legal landscape.
2: Hey, thanks for waiting. Come on in, have a seat. So, welcome to Chiba and Chiba Consulting. I hear you're trying to get started in the weed business. You've come to the right place for advice. My family's been in this business since the frontier days. My great-great-grandpa discovered you could cure a toothache with a little puff of ditchweed. He started using it for everything. I mean, you've seen what cocaine did for soda. If they hadn't started outlawing cannabis state by state at the turn of the century, I might have been heir to the ganja-cola fortune. So let's start with something you already know. Marijuana is illegal. Everywhere. Federal law is the law of the land. But in a lot of states, it's becoming less illegal. And that's made for all sorts of confusion. That's okay, that's why we're here. To figure out how to keep your marijuana business as legal as possible. So you're gonna to have to think about where you're gonna set up and how. And basically, you're looking at five major legal issues. One, old school police. Two, crazy taxes. Three, banking. Four, product regulations. And the fifth one is the hardest to plan for, politics. Because, I mean, Obama grew up on Maui Waui, but the next president could be a major buzzkill.
1: FBI, 2G,
2: so, okay, point number one. How are you gonna deal with the courts and the fuzz? Even in states where it's legal, these guys are not on your side. Take California. A lot of people think California is the place to set up shop, since it was the first to see the light on medical marijuana, way back in 1996. These days, you just go see Dr. Green on the Venice boardwalk, tell him about your occasional insomnia, and he writes you a recommendation for some locally grown, relaxed to the max Cali Kush. Cured my insomnia, almost immediately. And it's basically legal. But LA is home to Hollyweird, The freaks and freakettes. In other parts of the state, it's not that cool. For instance, there are like a hundred pot shops in San Diego, but the city won't license most of them, and the feds keep knocking down doors. I mean, take my man Winston Ludlam. He works hard, growing his crop to ease the suffering of countless cancer patients and anyone with a medical marijuana card. He supplies a couple of different collectives, but then, last fall, the cops stumbled upon a car full of guys getting ready to rob Winston's growing operation. His defense attorney, Mike McCabe, said they were minutes away from a home invasion robbery.
1: The cops saw him in the park, shook him down, finally got him to confess, you know, with, had the masks and everything, and they were getting ready to go in with guns and, and steal the money and the pot.
2: Now, this is bad for Winston, because not only did he almost get robbed, but now it looks like maybe he's got ties to some black market dudes.
1: If they know about it, then they must be uh, um, selling it out the back
2: door. Thing is, in December, Congress passed a spending bill that prohibits law enforcement from using federal money to go after medical pot. Congress basically said, Stop raiding the medical marijuana industry. And it was not a request. Now, the spending bill took effect January 1st, and the DEA didn't get a warrant to search Winston's operation until January 2nd, so he shouldn't have been raided. But the DEA found a loophole. State cops in courts aren't affected by the new rule. But they can't prosecute people for medical marijuana. It's not against state law. The feds can prosecute medical marijuana, but they're barred from spending money on the raid. So they got a state cop to make an arrest and then took it from there. Pretty sneaky. So it's almost like the DEA is using the state to get around the House bill? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Our position is... Bottom line? Dude, I do not recommend setting up shop in San Diego. Even in Colorado, half the counties made it illegal to open up a shop. So that's a major bummer. But it's all cool as long as you know the locals are mellow. So do your homework. That's my phone, hold on. Hey, what's up man, I'm in a meeting. Oh, no, that sounds like spider mites. Yeah, so what you want to do is you want to play the sound of music. Yeah, the original version, Julie Andrews. As loud as you can, really blast it for the plants. Okay, call me back if it doesn't work. Bye. Alright, sorry, where were we? Oh yeah. The second legal issue you're going to have to deal with is taxes. And this is no joke. Make a mistake and it will wipe out your profit. Might even land you in jail. Remember, Washington State got a lot of squares to vote for this based on taxes. They said it would make the state budget fat as a Peter Tosh birthday joint. That means the man gets a hit off every bud you sell. And you can learn a lot from how that's affected the business there. A few weeks ago, I was hanging out with Leroy Ellis, who works in this sweet little shop called Main Street Marijuana. It's in an old jewelry store, and they've got more than 50 strains on display under the glass, plus edibles and oils. And every shopper works with a bud tender, like Leroy.
3: This would be uh, Sativa right there. That's going to be your uplifting, energetic marijuana. Cinderella's dream, two grams. Anyway,
2: uh, even with the very stickiest of icky, so. profit can be hard to come by. Main Street Marijuana buys a gram of cannabis for $10 and sells it for 22 Sounds pretty good, right? Except the business loses $2 to sales tax and $5 to Washington State's 25% excise tax. That's a tax the state put on marijuana because they consider it a vice. And it's taken out at every step of the supply chain. Grower to processor to seller. No one expected that.
1: And you're left with a dollar and four cents off of buying it at 10 and selling it at 22. And then you have to pay all your overhead, your employees, and other expenses out of that.
2: That's Ramsey Hamid, owner of Main Street Marijuana. I talked to him on Skype. He says taxes are the number one issue affecting his business, which is only now beginning to stabilize. So far, recreational marijuana has been better for the states than for the growers and the sellers. And then you have to deal with the IRS, which comes with its own set of problems. The IRS doesn't actually care how you make your money, so long as you file taxes on whatever you made. Don't do it? and That's tax evasion, which is how they took down Al Capone. So you have to file taxes. Legitimate businesses can deduct almost everything they spend money on, including state taxes. Except there's this little section of the IRS tax code that lawyer Matt Goldberg told me about, Section 280E, and it states that Schedule One drugs aren't deductible as a business expense.
1: That was added to the tax code decades ago to address perceived abuses by, you know, drug dealers, like Miami Vice style, like boats and cars and travel and and excess in the lives and businesses of big-time drug dealers trying to take those things as deductions.
2: So when the excise tax pumps up the price of Ramsey's product, it also turns up the volume on his taxable income. Normal businesses could deduct all of that, but until federal law gets changed, pot taxes are going to be high as an Osprey in an updraft.
0: Once wheat is legal, Well, let me ask you this. When's the last time
2: you enjoyed going to a busy Starbucks? Now, do I want an ounce of Sour Diesel or Vancouver Sunset?
1: Okay, so that is $299 for the ounce, plus local tax, state tax, federal tax, that comes to $973. What?!
2: Okay, stay with me. Only a couple more legal hurdles. But this one hits you where it hurts. Banking. You're gonna have to stash all that dough you're making. But at some point, duffel bags full of greenbacks get impractical and might get lost. But walk into a Wells Fargo wearing a marijuana logo, and you're going to get the stink eye. Cue the expert, Doug Berman, Ohio State law professor.
1: It's in a sense, illegal for any nationally chartered banks. And every significant sized bank has, has a national federal charter of some sort or federal approval uh, for them to provide banking service to a marijuana industry because technically they would be providing banking services to illegal drug dealers.
2: Banks aren't willing to risk federal drug charges, is what he's saying. So pot shops can't get loans. And they also have to pay their employees and their bills in cash. So what's your best bet for stashing this other kind of green? A local bank, if there is one. I mean, a week ago, Oregon had exactly one bank offering checking accounts to cannabis companies. A tiny outfit called M Bank. But then it said compliance with government regulations was gonna be way too hard. So now, in Oregon, your options are burying the money in your backyard or using it to insulate your walls. There is one other option. Quietly set up some account with a bland sounding name, like Mary Jane's Chocolates, and keep a very low profile. If the bank finds out, they will close your accounts, even though the Obama administration has been writing memos since 2009, basically telling the Justice Department to look the other way. Oh, medication time. (laughs) (coughs) Okay. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Legal issue number four. Regulation. You might remember this. Last year, New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd ate a weed candy bar while covering the Colorado pot economy. They found her three months later in a homemade teepee. She was sculpting Cinderella's castle out of marshmallow fluff. At least that's what I heard. She pointed out that Colorado was littered with ganja gummy bears and kids can't tell the difference. OK, I see your point there. States aren't used to watching this stuff. Usually the FDA handles that. But the FDA is part of the federal government, so they can't exactly tell businesses how to make their illegal drugs safe for consumption.
1: And not surprisingly, those folks, in some sense, taking the risk of violating federal criminal law, don't even worry about am I complying with the food and drug laws or the packaging laws or you know, even some of the advertising restrictions or things like that.
2: For you, that means unpredictable legal challenges to the economics of selling
1: pot. The law is itself so much in flux that it's quite possible that, um, you know, the industry that tries to get revved up around one product could become illegal.
2: When it comes to product regulations, each state is its own testing ground, trying to find the sweet spot between legality and total prohibition. So you're going to need to think carefully before you market those psychedelic starbursts. Oh wait, that actually reminds me of a video? Come here, you guys gotta check this out.
1: And if they legalize it, they're going to have to regulate it and they're going to have to put a warning on a box of joints. It's going to have to say, Surgeon General has determined this will make your music awesome. Even Yanni.
2: I can see you're stressed out. Don't worry. There's only one legal issue left. The politics of pot. I mean, the next president probably won't have grown up hotboxing a Volkswagen like Obama did.
3: When I was a kid, I inhaled uh, frequently. That That was the point.
2: In fact, Professor Doug Berman thinks even a choir boy candidate like Mike Huckabee would think twice before cracking down.
1: Among the things that a number of people are looking at is 2016, a sense that if you want to have a chance to both encourage younger voters to come to the polls and to get them on your side, it may be dangerous to oppose marijuana reform.
2: Not only that, but Republicans generally champion the idea that states should have more power to self-govern. Come down against marijuana and you're suddenly a hypocrite. Washington Congressman Denny Heck gets this.
3: And I'm frankly stunned to learn that the party
2: whose heritage was in support of states' rights now no longer sees fit to uphold those states who have gone in this direction. So why are the feds doing it? Why hasn't the government lifted criminal penalties, simplified taxes and banking, and helped states regulate products? One thought is that all the constant shifting and backtracking
1: keeps businesses smaller. You're not going to get the tobacco industry coming in and, you know, commercializing this in the way tobacco industry does. You're not gonna get the alcohol industry. You're not gonna get any already legal industry that has a national footprint taking a chance while there's all this legal uncertainty.
2: Whenever a new marijuana business opens, the trick, for a while, is figuring out how to keep the product on the shelves. Flooding the country with pot all at once would be like Reefer Madness, 2015. Obama pretty much said so to CNN. Uh, Those who think legalization is a panacea, I think they have to ask themselves some tough questions, too. Because if we
3: start having a situation where uh, big corporations with a lot of resources and distribution and marketing arms are suddenly going out there uh, peddling marijuana, then uh, the levels of abuse that may take place are going to be higher.
2: So these taxes, banking problems, and contradictory regulations are like the government's way of saying, chill out, dudes. Let's build things up without everyone getting all paranoid and stressed. This isn't going to happen all at once, even with the stoner-in-chief trying to keep fellow tokers out of jail. So if you still want to get into the business, just remember, keep it mellow. Don't bogart the joint. There's plenty to go around. Something tells me you've got this. For Life of the Law, I'm Peter Frick Wright.
0: I'm Nancy Mullane. I thought we'd follow our story up by talking to a real lawyer about legalization of pot. I've asked Hadar Avaram, a professor of law at UC Hastings in San Francisco, to help sort this out. She's the author of the new book, Cheap on Crime. Hadar, one of the promises of marijuana legalization is that it would stop the incarceration of low-level pot users. Has that happened? I think it's early days and and it's uh, difficult to
3: still uh, to know, at least here in California, where we have uh, a pretty extensive medical marijuana protocol, but we have not legalized recreational marijuana. We do have a considerable amount of people doing time for marijuana offenses in California prisons and jails. And one of the things that is being discussed is the question of how these people are to be released if we decide to change the law. Well, how would they? So there are, diff- there are different ways of doing this. Uh, one way of doing this would be if we completely eliminate the criminal offenses associated with marijuana, we could uh, the governor could pardon all these people. There could be some kind of wholesale amnesty for everybody. We could reopen the cases. This would also mean that we would have to strike down various uh, uh, things that are in people's rap-, rap sheets so that they no longer have... Um, a criminal record with an offense that we no longer consider to be uh, criminal. So there are lots of different things that we could do, some of them in conjunction with each other.
0: So there has been a shift in the way society, or at least in, in the United States, how people see recreational use of marijuana. Apparently, the Pew Research poll recently found that 53 percent of Americans support legalization. Of pot. So is that turning the tide not just legally, but politically? I don't know that we've completely turned the tide politically. And
3: evidence of that is this week's decision in uh, Schweder versus U.S., where a district court judge didn't feel that it was time yet to reschedule marijuana away from Schedule 1 into a classification that awards it some medical value. So I don't think we're quite there yet. But here's what what we're seeing. Uh One of the things is exactly what you mentioned. The public opinion is changing. Less people are seeing this as harmful. There is a lot of distinguishing between marijuana and other drugs in public opinion, which sort of retrenches the idea that the other drugs should remain criminalized. However, marijuana needs to be treated differently. So that's one thing that uh, is often seen in these polls. The other thing that's going on is something that I talk about in my book, Cheap on Crime, which is that the recession has actually uh, brought Uh, some considerations regarding cost to the whole issue of marijuana enforcement. First, why are we spending so much money prosecuting and incarcerating people who are in for nonviolent drug offenses when we can spend the money on people who really should be behind bars? And the other one is if we legalize the product, that's a source of revenue. In the same way that when we repealed uh, prohibition, Part of the considerations were financial. So those things are changing. And it's also important to point out, and this is partly because of the recession and partly a feature of the Obama administration and its commitment to racial equality, that this is an administration that has produced several bipartisan federal initiatives to a take back the war on drugs in the sense that uh, mandatory minimums are going down, the gap between crack and powder cocaine is going down. Uh, We're seeing all kinds of things like that. And we're also seeing an unwillingness on the part of the feds to intervene in states that have legalized recreational marijuana. So they're sort of uh, staying away from the conversation until they see or unless they see evidence that the state is abusing its own, its own procedures. So, so I think in, in some way the feds are sort of at an impasse here. They don't want to tread on the states that have already legalized. Presumably the states that have not legalized federal enforcement is still, is still going on. So we have this, this uneven regime that's going on. I don't think they're ready to move forward, but I don't think they want to move
0: backward. If you were sitting across the table from someone who was considering opening a pot shop and they were going to sell marijuana in a state where marijuana was currently, by state law, legal, would you recommend they do that? Because there is the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution that gives the federal government to still hold them legally accountable for breaking a federal law.
3: That is always a risk. And what I would probably do is I would present whoever I'm advising with uh, the Eric Holder memo and the James Cole memo, both of which speak about the, the federal declaration, at least, that they will resist intervention in states in which marijuana is, uh, is uh, legal and tell the person, you know, that it really it really is a question of what kind of risk you're willing to take. And as in any business enterprise, there are people who are willing to live with more risk. And those are the people that are willing to go into a business that is still
0: illegal federally. Can you give an estimate of when you think marijuana will be legal in the United States under federal law? I'm positive in my lifetime, but I don't know when. Hadar, thanks for joining us at Life of the Law. Hadar Avarim is a professor of law at UC Hastings in San Francisco and is the author of the new book, Cheap on Crime. Thanks also to Peter Frick-Wright for his reporting and Michael May for editing this episode. Jonathan Hirsch and Caitlin Prest created the sound design and produced the story with music by Anders Petterson and Ben Cruz. Howard Gelman at KQED in San Francisco was our engineer. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center and we're part of the infinite guest network of podcasts from American public media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're funded by the National Science Foundation, the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, and the Proteus Fund. If you're new to Life of the Law, I hope you'll take a minute to subscribe to our podcast. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.